and welcome to the new longer weekly version of the Fred Paul Show on ADH TV. I've been promoted to editorial manager here at ADH and am now also focused on bringing great new content to you, our viewers and listeners. As we all know, Australia needs common sense commentary more than ever these days. So watch this space. Tonight, I've got the great Josh Hammer from Florida to discuss the latest stench of corruption engulfing President Joe Biden's family. And later, I'll speak with Nick Holt, an Australian journalist who says his Twitter account was taken down, possibly at the request of someone inside the Australian government. That is, your government working with a foreign company to silence the voice of a citizen. We'll ask him why he is such a menace to society later. But first, let's talk about one of the most pressing issues in Australia today, and that is housing. Like everything these days, housing has become a football, kicked around by politicians to score political points while not actually achieving anything of benefit for the nation. There was a time not, lo not so long ago when the phrase affordable housing meant a house built cheaply enough by a private builder for a struggling family to buy. In those days, there was no need for government intervention to make a house affordable. It was just strictly a deal between a builder and a buyer. Since then, successive governments at both state and federal levels have created conditions that now make housing unaffordable. They've done this in a variety of ways, but always for the same reason. And I hope you'll forgive me if this sounds cynical. Two thirds of Australians either own or have paid off their home. For a large majority of those people, their house is their primary asset against which they refinance in order to do all sorts of things in life, like start a business, get their kids through school, buy a car or go on holiday. This is why over the past 30 or more years, an expectation has emerged that real estate values will continue to rise. To some people, rising house prices are also evidence that the economy is in good health. If people can afford to pay twice for, what, twice for my house, what it was worth 30 years ago, then the economy must be booming. But it's not. It's simply supply, kept low by governments regulating the building industry out of existence, outstripping demand, which is boosted by record levels of immigration. Here is one of Australia's most respected entrepreneurs, Matt Barry, explaining it on Damien Khoury's show on ADH TV last Tuesday. So we can't increase supply. So therefore, the only thing we can do is reduce demand. And Albanese has gone full burko on immigration the other way around, turning every single tap he can on in a desperate attempt to prop everything up. So, you know, removing the, um, you know, lifting the, the, the cap on, on, on permanent migrants, uh, removing the, the skilled list, um, you know, uh, letting in the New Zealanders, God knows we'll let the Tasmanians in soon next, that's a joke. But, um, you know, just every, you know, uh, basically um, allowing anyone who's uh, here, I think there's 2.1 at the moment, the temporary skilled visa in the country, 
uh, a path to permanent um, to uh, permanent residency, and so on. Every possible tap you can turn on, he's turned on in a full Ponzi move, um, desperately attempting to keep the housing market by by therefore the the the, the banks solvent, um, because we're going to head into a GFC style event. Every housing market around the world has had a bubble, uh, pretty much, in the Western world and, and, and deflated eventually. And we have doubled down and we're actually at the limit now of what households can afford. This policy works politically for a while until house prices rise so high that they, well, I'll let Matt Barry explain it. What, what really has been managed is house prices. As long as house prices go up, um, generally speaking, the government thought everything was okay, but they've gone up so far and so extreme and so off kilter with, with the rest of the world um, that we're at the point now where it just affects everything. It affects, affects businesses, it affects you know, you know, your everyday life and why you can't afford to get a meal, it affects you know, energy prices, it affects everything. The rest of that interview is equally alarming. Matt Barry says the Australian economy is essentially a Ponzi scheme that is about to collapse. And I recommend you watch it at Damien Curry's show on ADH.TV or on our app. The other outcome of all this woeful policy making is that the remaining third of Australians who haven't yet bought their own home are now increasingly coming to the conclusion that they probably never will. Which is why headlines like this are suddenly everywhere. I won't bore you with the details, but the government's $10 billion housing fund is not $10 billion set aside to actually build residential real estate. But even if it were, it wouldn't be enough. That is assuming, of course, that it is the government's job to build homes for people, which, is, which it absolutely is not. Like I said, affordable housing should be simply a house that a working family can afford to buy from a private builder. The only role for the government should be to provide the utilities and get the hell out of the way. It's worth reminding ourselves that there is more at stake than mere roofs over the heads of Australian citizens. On May 22, 1942, Robert Menzies, who was then a member of the federal opposition, delivered his forgotten people speech on radio a speech that largely defined post-war politics in Australia. Here is a recreation of that speech using artificial intelligence in which Menzies describes the spiritual value of a family home. The home is the foundation of sanity and sobriety. It is the indispensable condition of continuity. Its health determines the health of society as a whole. One of the best instincts in us is that which induces us to have one little piece of earth with a house and a garden which is ours, to which we can withdraw, in which we can be among our friends, into which no stranger may come against our will. My home is where my wife and children are. The instinct to be with them is the great instinct of civilized man. The instinct to give them a chance in life, to make them not leaners but lifters, is a noble instinct. 
This is a founding principle of Australia, an extension of the concept inherited from Britain that an Englishman's home is his castle. But it's not his castle if the government owns it, which is the only solution our current generation of politicians think is plausible. But it gets worse. Have a look at this from today's Daily Telegraph in Sydney. New South Wales government slashes red tape for social housing projects. Red tape will be urgently, urgently slashed in a bid to address the housing crisis in New South Wales, with agencies given greater powers to approve their own developments instead of going through councils. Meanwhile, all you schmucks who want to pay for your own home Get to the back of the queue and wait months or even years to get your homes through the regulatory bodies because you don't matter. It's alarming that on the one hand, the government is acknowledging that regulations are an, are an unnecessary burden on urgently needed housing, while on the other hand, they're saying they are doing us a favour by slashing the red tape, but only for the housing the government is building. So, who are these social housing organisations getting the red carpet while everyone else gets red tape? Well, they are the Land and Housing Corporation and the Aboriginal Housing Office. The relaxed restrictions allow these organisations to increase the density of their developments regardless of the concerns of the local council's elected representatives. The primary focus of all these policies may as well have come from the World Economic Forum, which once released a poster saying, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy, thinking that such a depressing, regressive idea would be a hit in liberal democracies. By increasing the share of public housing, the government is also nudging us closer to the idea of the 15-minute city. This is the theory that you will be happier if you live within a 15 minute walk of everything you need. But it won't just be you having this access to services. It will also be your new public housing neighbours. This is the flip side of the 15 minute city. They are by nature based on quote, mixed housing, which is a euphemism for working families being forced to live alongside the drugs, crime and welfare dependency that often characterises public housing. It's one thing for taxpayers to fund public housing, but it's another for them to be forced to live alongside it. This is where all these policies are leading and it is the main solution, solution our governments are offering in this housing crisis. You have to ask yourself, did we even vote for this? Okay, let's go now to my semi-regular US correspondent, Josh Hammer, the senior editor at large for Newsweek magazine and host of the excellent Josh Hammer podcast. And there is a lot to talk about in US politics at the moment. Josh, welcome back to the show. Brad, it's always a pleasure. Great to be back with you. First, let's talk about the dirt that is emerging regarding the millions of dollars President Joe Biden's family allegedly received from foreign interests while Joe was vice president. 
The Republicans in Congress are saying that one Ukrainian businessman has 17 recordings of conversations with the Bidens in which bribes are negotiated. Now, here is a clip, a very short clip of a journalist putting that to Joe Biden recently. Apes that you accepted bribes, President Biden. Is that true? Josh, I've got to say, the way he just smiles and walks away makes me, you know, incandescent with rage and I'm not even a US citizen. Josh, how does he get away with it? He gets away with it because the American press corps, the corporate media in this country, bends over backwards, bends over backwards to apologize for him. So every every so often you have some semi-intrepid journalist who is actually able to kind of cut through the uniparty talk and actually pose a legitimate question. And then when he acts like he did in that clip right there, he has 10 to 20 times more journalists who will obfuscate, who will distract, who will change the topic, who will say, oh, you know, it's just innocent old Uncle Joe. You know, the line that we hear here in America that we've heard for so many years is, oh, it's just Uncle Joe. It's the guy at the Thanksgiving dinner table who's going to kind of, you know, have a fun, heated conversation. He's just being Uncle Joe again. And they, they, they try this tactic time and time again. They do it both with substantive grievances, a kind of like this Ukraine scandal. And yes, it is a legitimate scandal. And they also do it for his so-called, quote unquote, gaffes, which increasingly are not just kind of innocent gaffes, but are actually in, indicative of someone who is, uh, you, know, you know, painfully speaking, who is deeply in the throes of senility. It brings me no joy to say, but that's just the case. But he gets away with it because, again, he has a press corps. And really just all of the elite institutions in the private sector in this country, from the Fortune 500 to the universities, they are almost all unanimously in the tank for President Joe Biden. So no matter how badly he messes up, no matter how legitimate the grievances might be, and in the case of, of this Ukraine thing, it is so very legitimate. And, and the timeline, by the way, to me makes total sense. I can absolutely see, we haven't seen the documents yet, but I can totally, totally see Joe and Hunter Biden being guilty of exactly what this FBI document allegedly accuses him of because the timeline fits perfectly. When Joe Biden allegedly was looking into firing the prosecutor back in Green, the timeline matches up to a T. But none of none of the details, unfortunately, Fred, matter because, again, the American people only know what the media filters through to them. And here, all too often, it is just so deeply in the tank for Joe Biden. Well, that's the media. You did make allusions there to the American public. The, the media and the institutions are clearly on Joe's side. But is there growing disillusionment among ordinary Americans that something stinks here? Well, yes, to an extent. I mean, Joe Biden has extremely low approval ratings. The last I saw, his approval ratings here were hovering in the low 30s. I saw one poll that had him at 31%, which is really terrible. I, I mean, frankly, an incumbent running for re-election at 31% approval ratings really should be a dead man walking. I mean, in any kind of legitimate political reality, and America does not currently exist in a political reality for any number of other reasons, obviously the Trump, the indictments, all this other crap, for lack of a better word, that is going on. But someone who is that deeply unpopular should be politically dead come to the ballot box next November 2024. But look, uh, you know, uh, uh, Joe Biden does not currently have a, a viable, legitimate Democratic primary challenger. I mean, Robert F. Kennedy is attracting roughly 20 percent of the vote. He is generally not viewed as a as a legitimate challenger. And I personally actually like a lot of what RFK is doing in, in terms of kind of just, 
you know, throwing kind of a, a rock into the gear switch and really kind of, you know, mucking things up on that side of the aisle. I personally kind of take some glee and satisfaction from that. But 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 his odds of actually securing the primary are not considered particularly high. Then you have Marianne Williamson, who was somewhat of an after-ran when she ran in 2020. She's not considered legitimate either. So unless Gavin Newsom of California who, uh, you know, as horrible as his governing record is, and it is very horrible, he is at least something that RFK and Marianne are not, which is a politician who has considerable money and a considerable base, for better or for worse. So he would be a legitimate challenger. But as of now, the path is very clear for Joe Biden to kind of coast to reelection. The real question then is, you know, whether or not he finds some excuse to then bow out quickly in a second term after he's reelected, kind of paving the way for Kamala Harris. That's that's kind of what I'm actually more interested in at the moment. Well, that's a frightening scenario. We'll, we'll come back to that when you come back to the show during the next, uh, you know, during the primaries and, and the lead up to the next election for sure, because that is a scenario that would even frighten us down here in Australia. But let's talk about the other side of the primaries now. And I know this is one of your key points of focus, and it's the looming contest between former President Donald Trump and your favorite, your resident Florida governor, you are in Florida, um, Ron DeSantis, for the Republican nomination. Now you moved to Florida because you admired the way DeSantis adhered to the principles of freedom during COVID and those principles have been continued to be adhered to uh, since then in the face of widespread wokeness uh, everywhere else across the United States. But I think COVID is the key thing here in the Republican primaries, because this more than anything, Josh, correct me if I'm wrong, is the key point of difference between DeSantis and Trump. You know, Trump initiated uh, Operation Warp Speed. He was fully behind the vaccines, whereas DeSantis just uh, stuck by the old principles of freedom. Is it, do you think this is where the two will part company? So there's, no, there's actually a number of issues where I think Trump and DeSantis are currently operating on different wavelengths. I agree with you that COVID probably above all else is an issue where they are just on totally, totally different paradigms right now. I mean, of course, when, you know, when Donald Trump, you know, as late as June of 2020, so two and a half, three months after the COVID lockdown started, the Trump war room Twitter account, because you remember that this was the 2020 election. So he, he had a war room kind of political Twitter account, tweeted out this kind of clip montage, if I recall correctly, of Trump saying at the podium that he is listening, he is listening to every word Anthony Fauci has said. He would never go against the beloved Dr. Anthony Fauci. And to this day, Fred, to this day, Donald Trump does not apologize at all whatsoever for Operation Warp Speed and the mRNA vax mandates. Not not even a smidgen. I mean, he is profoundly unapologetic about that. So so the record for DeSantis in Florida is extremely clear. As you know, I, I, I moved here in 2021 during covid due in no small part due to how impressed I was at how he handled COVID here. There were other factors as well. He's just a very, you know, uh, prolific and, and frankly inspiring politician in many ways in the policies. But COVID definitely was a big part of it. But there are other issues, I think, where Trump and DeSantis are, are increasingly disagreeing as well. So this, so Trump actually recently criticized Florida's six-week abortion ban, the pro-life law that we passed here in Florida. He said that it struck him as too harsh. Uh, DeSantis has also said that if he were elected president, then, then he would repeal a legislation that passed during the Trump administration known as the First Step Act. 
which was uh, a, a bit of quote unquote criminal justice reform, or as some detractors such as myself would call it, a jailbreak bill, which would basically slash sentences. Actually, it was just this past week that someone who was convicted for 30 years of financing Sunni Islamist terrorist groups in the Middle East was actually just had his prison sentence cut off. He was released under the first step back. So, you know, that is a point of contention as well. And many of us who were skeptical of that law said that Trump basically outsourced his criminal justice reform policy to Kim Kardashian and Kanye West. Jared Kushner to perhaps a lesser extent. So there's actually any number of policies where I think the two of them are are disagreeing on. But I do agree with you that COVID is definitely one of the more kind of highly visible issues. How much the COVID issue matters, of course, uh, I think remains to be seen because, you know, the height of the COVID stuff at this point was two to three years ago. So uh, we'll see how much Republican primary voters are still thinking about it. But you know, I know that in some states, such as Nevada, DeSantis was just out in Nevada, which is a very early state here in the U.S. primary voting system. I think it's actually voting third next year after Iowa and New Hampshire, ahead of even South Carolina, if I'm not mistaken. But when you out of Nevada recently, DeSantis was talking a lot about COVID, and Nevada was hit harder by COVID lockdowns than basically any other state. Their unemployment rate, I think, was literally 50 out of 50 for a while. So the COVID message resonates in states like that. It does resonate. How much it resonates nationally, I think, remains to be seen. Well, one of your criticisms of Trump is that he's fighting the battles of the past, uh, whereas uh, DeSantis is focused firmly on the future. But it's difficult for Trump, really. I mean, I know you're a critic of Trump and you're not a big supporter, but it's difficult for Trump to really uh, put a flag in the ground on any issue because he's too preoccupied fighting the FBI and the DOJ. Right. No. Yeah. And just to clarify, Fred, you know, I, I, I enthusiastically voted for Donald Trump in 2020. I actually, you know, I wrote an op-ed for The New York Post like a week and a half before that election calling Donald Trump the most pro-Jewish president of all time. And Trump himself retweeted that tweet on Twitter. So, I, I mean, I, I, was, I, I wrote countless op-eds defending Trump through both of his nonsensical BS impeachment. So, you know, I, I, I've defended Trump a lot. I just happen to think that it's time for us to move on for the reason that you said that we have to focus on the issues that matter. And, if you, you know, if you tend to be as jaded and cynical about the current state of United States, frankly, and Western civilization more generally, you know, I, I personally just feel that we need a young, scrappy, hungry warrior who, who can get in there on day one and ruthlessly execute an agenda. But to your point, you know, Trump obviously is in part focused on the past, in part because he is currently being investigated on all sorts of nonsensical charges. I mean, the Alvin Bragg thing out of New York City was utterly, utterly ridiculous. I, I, I mean, that was a total travesty of justice. Alvin Bragg is a clown. He's a clown for bringing that prosecution. No legitimate prosecutor should have ever brought that. The federal indictment, which happened, of course, more recently here in Florida, pertained to the classified documents in Mar-a-Lago, the alleged conduct, the alleged conduct in the indictment, I read the whole indictment, I think is, is, is much more egregious than the underlying conduct from the New York State prosecution. But, but I simply do not think that the prosecution should have been brought for any number of reasons, one of which is that the underlying statute, the Espionage Act, is kind of a dusty World War One era relic of a statute. It's, it's very tendentious to try to bring prosecution on anyone under the Espionage Act over 100 years after it passed, let alone a former president of the United States. So I, I object to the prosecution on any number of reasons. I think this prosecution should not have been brought, period. But I, I do have to say that having read the indictment, the alleged conduct, and obviously you're innocent until proven guilty, the indictment is just the 
the federal government's view of the of the alleged offense. But the underlying conduct described is is not good. I will say that much. Yeah, well, we'll get to a bit, get back to um, Bragg, the uh, the New York uh, prosecutor, in a second, because I want to talk to you about George Soros. I know that's another topic of interest to you. But just right now, as we're, you talked about your despair about uh, the state of Western civilization, in a recent piece you wrote, uh, pretty much implied that it was a, a fight at the moment between civilizational sanity and civilizational arson. Now, the point, I, the, uh, the question I want to put to you, Josh, is: Are the arsonists only on the Democrat side, or are they among Republicans as well? Well, I think the worst arsonists are definitely on the political left. There's no, I mean, the worst arsonists when it comes to civilizational values are those who are literally grooming the children in the schools who are exposing elementary school children to pornography in the libraries who are telling them that they can transition, so to speak, away from their biological sex and that the teacher is forbidden from telling the parents. The civilizational arsonists are those like Governor Jay Inslee in Washington state who shepherded through this absolutely horrific piece of legislation that would effectively permit children to transition and all that, that entails, whether it be kind of surgeries, um, mastectomies, all that, without the parents so much as knowing. You know, those are the true civilizational arsonists. I mean, I mean, is those who are just really kind to bring this country to end this whole Western civilization to hell in a handbasket. But yes, I mean, of course, that there are no small sampling, I think, of kind of vichy, complicit Republicans and, and those on kind of the controlled opposition right that are all too complicit in this agenda. Look, if you don't understand that we are in a, a battle, um, the likes of which, uh, as you just described, and as I put it frequently in my columns, is a battle between civilizational sanity and civilizational. Look, I, I'll put it this way. In late April, I was at the Heritage Foundation's 50th anniversary gala, and Tucker Carlson gave a wonderful, wonderful keynote address. And it was it was actually just three days before he was fired. No one at the time knew that he was going to get fired. But the the theme, the, the, the key takeaway of Tucker Carlson's kind of keynote address at the Heritage Gala was that our debates these days are not debates where the two sides are actually interested in the same outcome, and the debate is just about which means to arrive at that outcome. The difference between our debates now and our debates 25, 30 years ago is that we are not interested in the same outcome. There are so many who are, are, are deeply, deeply interested in, have a vested interest in seeing American decline, in seeing global decline, in seeing China engorge, in seeing the forces of intersectionality, gender ideology, all of this anti-Americanist stuff rise to the top. And if you are a quote-unquote Republican who fails to understand those stakes, if you think that we're just having kind of a nice kind of amicable civil disagreement about the best capital gains tax rate, then yeah, you fundamentally, I think, are part of the civilizational arson crowd due, if at a bare minimum, I think, to rank incompetence and sheer ignorance, even if you do, even if you do not have actual malice in your heart. Well, the arsons, well said, well said, Josh. You're very, uh, very articulate on that issue. And I've got to say that the, um, those issues are alive and well down here as well. It's uh, the, the civilizational arsons have, uh, are, are working furiously down here to, you know, the, the transgender issue is, is very prominent here. We have laws in certain states where, as you say, Kids can be begin their transition at school, and uh, it's actually against the law uh, to tell the parents, and it's also against the law for the parents in some states to counsel their kids against 
being having their gender reversed. It's it's uh, it, that if that's not civilizational arson, I don't know what is. But one of the greatest forces, uh, one of the biggest arsons, I'd have to say, would be George Soros, the billionaire financier. And his, his MO is to back the election of, uh, of police chiefs and uh, district attorneys who are soft on crime. And we in Australia see the evidence of that every day on social media. The, the social media is awash these days with videos made just, you know, for the fun of it, of people being beaten up on the streets and, and uh, you know, stores being uh, ransacked by looters with complete impunity, mostly thanks to George Soros. Now you've started an organization called, <laughs> I, love the, I love how prosaic this is, Josh, Jews against Soros. We, uh, we Australians love that kind of direct language. Now, can you just um, explain to the viewers why you called your new organi organization Jews against Soros and what you're hoping to achieve? Yeah, so the, I, I, the mission of the, of the organization is what the title suggests, which is we are Jews who do not like George Soros. And here's the problem, Fred. The problem is that George Soros, who, who happens to be Jewish by birth, notwithstanding the fact that he is one of the world's largest funders of anti-Jewish, anti-Israel causes, the state of Israel actually despises George Soros. George Soros himself has a, shall we say, deeply checkered family history when it comes to complicity with occupying Nazis in Hungary back during the World War II. But because he happens to be Jewish by birth, whenever George Soros does something here in the United States and some Republican, typically a conservative, uh, tends to, to criticize George Soros, inevitably the Praetorian Guard for George Soros comes out and wags their big finger and says, oh, you can't say that. It's anti-Semitic. And I've just had enough of that. And my friends, Will Scharf and I, decided to kind of put together this coalition. Will Scharf and I are both Jewish, and we're decently observant Jews at that. I mean, we, we keep kosher, we go to shul. I mean, we're, we're profoundly proud Jews, strong Zionists, whatever. But we have had enough of this. Will and I are both lawyers. We are both very tough on crime, pro-law and order when it comes to prosecution, when it comes to criminal offenses. And George Soros, in particular, in the United States these days, as you said, is the number one bankroller, and it's not even far, he's the number one bankroller of the so-called progressive prosecutor movement, the Reform Prosecutor Project, and he basically is trying to get elected prosecutors who, ironically, do not prosecute. And he's been very successful. He's elected 75 district attorneys in the United States, and that covers, I think, roughly 20 percent, 20 to 25 percent, if I'm not mistaken, of the United States population actually currently lives under Soros DAs. And these cities invariably are going to hell in a handbasket, whether it's San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, St. Louis, New York City, Tampa Bay, at least until Ron DeSantis pulled the Soros prosecutor, Andrew Warren there last last year. All of these cities are, 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 are deeply, deeply, deeply addled by these same recurring problems, which is rampant crime, lawlessness, needles, feces in the sidewalk. I mean, look, I, I, Fred, I lived in Chicago for three years. I went to law school in Chicago. When I was back there last year, I barely recognized the place. I mean, it, it, it palpably felt less safe than it did just a few years earlier. Chicago, of course, is one of the United States' greatest cities. It's one of the greatest cities in the world, for that matter. So this man is evil. This man is evil, and the point is that you are allowed to criticize George Soros' horrible, terrible influence without being called anti-Semitic. So Jews Against Soros is just that. It is a grassroots initiative. It is a coalition that Will Scharf and I co-founded. 
and we're just cobbling together a group of people to kind of get out there and say, we are Jews who oppose George Soros, and you, you shall not be unjustly criticized of anti-Semitism for simply having the courage to get out there and criticize George Soros. But the amount of people who who, who agree with us and see this has been genuinely inspiring. I, I have gotten so many positive feedback from fellow Jews, from Orthodox Jews, religious Jews. You know, Amichai Shikli, who is the Netanyahu government's current minister of diaspora affairs, he's one of the ones who was in charge of kind of relationships to the Jewish diaspora and anti-Semitism. You know, he liked all my tweets on Twitter when I unveiled this. He has described George Soros as being like an enemy of Israel. So, uh, look, George Soros is terrible. He's evil. And that's it. It doesn't matter that he happens to be Jewish. If anything, it cuts the other direction because he is, if, if nothing else, a profoundly self-hating and destructive Jew. Well, you mentioned the word courage there, and I admire you for it. Isn't it amazing when you just show a little bit of courage, how much support just comes uh, out of nowhere to, uh, to back you up. Josh Hammer, thanks so much for your time. Anytime, Fred. Thank you. That's Josh Hammer, the senior editor-at-large at Newsweek magazine and the host of the excellent Josh Hammer podcast, which I highly recommend. Well, my next guest is Nick Holt, a musician and former music journalist whose iconoclastic instincts were thoroughly aroused during the COVID pandemic, not only by the authoritarianism that emerged, but also by the response from people who should have known better. In June 2022, he posted a tweet saying that up to 7,000 Australians may have died as a result of the COVID vaccines and that, quote, the Therapeutic Goods Administration and the Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation are concealing vital information about the figures, unquote. Nick Holt's Twitter account was frozen soon after that, and he wasn't reinstated until January this year, after new owner and free speech proponent Elon Musk bought and took over the platform. Last month, South Australian Senator Alex Antich revealed the results of a Freedom of Information request, showing that the Australian government had intervened at least 4,213 times to restrict or censor posts about the COVID-19 pandemic on digital platforms. These are posts by Australians, I should add. Now, Nick joins me now to discuss whether his post or his whole account was one of them. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Fred. I should clarify that that quote actually wasn't mine. That was from uh, an interview that I had conducted with an organisation called Coverse, which is an advocacy organisation for vaccine-injured Australians that's made up of uh, medical professionals oh, from good. Okay. Australia. Well, I, I want to I get to those specifics um, uh, in a second, but just, just for... To, just to distance myself from, uh, from uh, well, making up Well, you'll have an opposition to do myself. that in a second. Yeah, so, sure. All right. Well, I mean, you did post it, but let's... let's uh, before we do that, I just want to, for the benefit of the viewers, I just want to get a bit on your background. Can you explain to the viewers how you made the leap from musician and musician, music journalist to one of the nation's most prolific defenders of freedom? Uh, look, well, I have worked variously throughout 
journalism and writing through radio and print. I worked for the Catholic Church as a journalist. Uh, I worked for uh, radio stations. I studied philosophy and writing. Uh, generally, I, I just have always had a very low tolerance for people who purport to be one thing and do the other. And I had really managed to stay out of that space for as long as I could uh, until two, two very key things happened. I think first was the manipulation of the truth of who Donald Trump was versus how the media was portraying him. Uh, I couldn't really stand that. And secondarily was then, of course, COVID-19 as this was affecting my life and the life of my family members. I think the final straw was the realisation that uh, a handful of bureaucrats were essentially in charge of whether or not we could visit dying relatives in hospital. And to me, that was... Uh, the most egregious thing that could be done by a bureaucrat. Yeah, well, so, there was... Uh, I'm not so... Sorry, go ahead, yeah. Well, I mean, the alarm bells were ringing pretty loudly to a lot of people because, as you say, bureaucrats were calling the shots. Our elected representatives, who are the ones who answer to us, were just sitting back and saying, oh, well, we've got the medical advice. So what, what was it about that situation that, that you know, raised, raised the alarms for you? Why, why, why did you become so, uh, you know, determined to um, expose all this? Well, I saw it from the very beginning. I mean, I, I'm someone who is, had become very immune to the way that the media behaves in terms of creating, uh, intentionally or unintentionally, creating... Uh, mass hysteria within society. And, and I think that there's arguments either way for whether or not this is intentional or unintentional. Phenomenons happen, right? So we see this every time there's a school shooting. People immediately um, disregard critical thinking and common sense. You look at the statistics on mass shooting, it's very minor compared to all the other gun deaths in America, yet immediately everyone starts acting in a hive and irrationally calling for gun abolition and right, right, attacking the, the cornerstone of another country's constitution. It's just, it's absurd. And then we saw it with George Floyd. We see it with all these things, right? So when Wuhan happened, uh, you know, it, it, to me it was just comical people collapsing in the street, uh, Chinese people being welded into their apartments, doctors in hazmat suits with rifles. Uh, I said to my parents at the time, you know, this is complete nonsense. And, and then from there, the, the way people were behaving, it's a clear sign to me that irrationality is happening as a result of the imagery and the behaviour of the media. And I've always had a very deep distrust and uh, I think perhaps why I became such a, a supporter of Donald Trump is because of 
his view towards the media, mainstream media, as being an enemy of the people, intentionally or unintentionally. I think now perhaps there's more of an argument that it's intentional. Uh, but they really do mislead people by creating prevailing narratives that don't allow for any nuance and send people into fear and um, poor decision-making. And there's no greater example than COVID-19. And I was essentially looking back at all the podcasting episodes I did now, there's nothing there that I'm not, that I say, I wish I didn't do that because it's all uh, information now that is either come true or the arguments are solid. I talk to people, like I talk to economists, economists now who are completely correct, Gigi Foster, Cameron Murray, uh, Martin Lally, who is the only, he's a New Zealander, the only economist in the Southern Hemisphere who did a cost-benefit analysis at the time. The New Zealand government told him to get staffed. Uh, yeah. These sorts of people, right, I was talking to doctors at the time who were saying, well, slow down because there could be a very big knock-on effect here from delayed cancer screenings. So these were things I was seeing personally and trying to raise the alarm about and, of course, was being told to shut up and sort of thing. So I didn't get... So go ahead, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, we we live supposedly in the age of, uh, of social media um, where there are low barriers to uh, getting a message out and if it's a, a valid message, then it will find its natural audience. But... Uh, during COVID, the social media platforms proved themselves to be less than adequate in these circumstances, and it led to you being taken down off Twitter. Now, you accused the TGA and ATAGI, two Australian regulatory bodies, um, of being directly or indirectly, sorry, you didn't accuse, you quoted someone accusing them of being responsible for the 7,000 Australian deaths, possibly through the vaccines. Now, well, if you ask me, Nick, that number might actually be low because uh, from the statistics I've seen, there were 8,700 more deaths in Australia in 2021 than there were the year before. And those could arguably be attributable to the vaccines. Now, the government is suspiciously incurious to know whether that is the case and is in fact doing everything it can to obstruct anyone who is. Now, let's talk about your 7,000 figure. Where did that come from? Yeah, so, so the accusation uh, was not, just to um, clarify, the accusation was not that they were um, responsible. I, I agree with what you're saying. So just to, so we can get this on the right path, uh, it was that this organisation was saying that the TGA have said that there are 7,000. However, their information suggests that that number is much higher, like you just said. Um, and this is in terms of adverse reactions. So it's more that... Coverse, the, the advocacy organisation, believes that the TGA is uh, deliberately uh, making that number or misreporting. 
right. the, the number of severe reactions. What's the latest, what, what's the latest information you have about uh, excess deaths and uh, relationship to um, vaccines? Well, I'm a bit of a sceptic on this because I think pe people need to be very careful between taking, associating correlation with a conclusion because at the moment we don't know, right? There are certain things that fit and we, we, we would like to, you know, our brains like to work in a way where we see things we put them together and we make conclusions that fit our our biases. And this is another very big problem of Twitter and social media. Uh, you know, cognitive dissonance and, and confirmation bias is rampant on all sides of the political spectrum. And when you see people talking about excess deaths being the result of vaccines unequivocally, uh, that's that's not true. You can't reach that conclusion yet. No, you can't. You can't um, reach that conclusion yet. But the government is actively concealing or obstructing anyone who wants to find out. Which that rings alarm bells to me. What about you? Yeah, I mean, it, there could be many reasons for that. One reason might be that they don't want to. Let's put put yourself in their shoes. It would be a disaster for them to come out and admit anything after the extraordinary marketing campaign that they put the country through right with how this thing was uh, and when we're learning more and more about how they used an organization one of the biggest marketing campaigns uh, marketing agencies in the world called MNC Saatchi and I believe we'll be learning a lot more about that in the upcoming weeks and months uh, they were responsible for creating the ad campaigns about the vaccine and other things. So they're a little bit screwed in that regard. I don't think they're concealing deaths. I'm not someone who believes that this thing is um, a bioweapon to depopulate the world. Uh, I think that in those areas there's a lot of echo chambers going on and I think that that sort of thinking... Um, yeah, I'm not discounting it. Who knows? Maybe it is. But but I think that when you you subscribe to that idea, like I said, unequivocally, then you're not really allowing yourself any room for critical thinking and other possibilities. Like what the, the excess deaths, like I said before, you think about how many cancer screenings and other things were delayed. Well, uh, indeed, yeah. Years, I mean, but these are also things that you can you can trace back to the Australian government for you know locking people down. Oh, yeah. But now, but let's just move on. I'm not on. excusing, I'm not excusing yeah, them. No, yeah, no, I wouldn't, didn't think you would. <laughs> now, but let's move on to, the, um, to to what uh, South Australian Senator Alex Antich uncovered recently. Um, do you think, so he, he uncovered through freedom of information, again, the government obstructing uh, its own yeah. uh, people. One of, a member of its own parliament is obstructed by the government from finding out what the government has been doing. Oh, God, if that doesn't make anyone suspicious, you'd have to be crazy. But do you think that you're of those at least 4,213 cases of the government encouraging the censorship of Australians on social media, do you think you were one of them? 
I'd include it in my multi bet. <laughs> yes, along with the sun rises in the east. Let's put it this way, right? Uh, what we what we do know is uh, there's something I can I can say for certain is that so on on the on the 28th of April, the Australian government uh, instructed a Canadian news site to remove an article about a male transgender woman participating in a uh, Australian female soccer league. That outlet was called Redux.info. Um, now, the individual... They identified that individual and reported uh, that that parents had expressed concerns over on-field injuries that this in, that this individual had caused. Uh, there's 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 a there's a position in the government called the e-safety commissioner. Her name is Julie Ingham Grant. Julie Ingham Grant emailed. Well, we don't know if it's her, but it came from her office. Emailed this news organisation, they received the email at about midnight Canadian time uh, with a letter of demand to remove that that article, basically saying, um, you know, it, it violates some unknown Australian, Australian law because they'd identified the name and image of a trans person in Australia. Um, and that, and they, and also that the claims of this individual injuring women was deemed false by the e-safety commissioner, despite 12,000 complaints roughly from people online through parents and all sorts of things. Um, now, they also received an email, a letter of demand from Twitter Australia's legal department saying that the article will be removed within Australia. Now, their editor, Anna Slats, just to put this website into context, it's a very big website in Canada and it's pretty big now around the world. And their whole uh, mission statement is basically this website is dedicated to exposing the worst of the worst of gender ideology. So basically uh, they covered Moira Deeming quite a lot. Um, they, they cover females or men in women's prisons, right, um, violent male rapists who have turned into women in 48 hours, these sorts of horrible things. Uh, so Anna Slats told her that, no, we won't be taking that down. Sorry. So the e-safety commissioner went ahead and censored it within Australia. So a couple of days later, I had Anna Slats on my program. Uh, it was the first interview she'd ever done in the world. So I had her on the program to basically, you know, bring to light, this is why I, from my perspective, was to bring to light the extent at which the Australian government, through this e-safety commissioner, uh, who, by the way, was born in America, has worked for the WEF and, you know, it's interesting, I think we've spoken about this at, they all seem to have done their time here. Uh, anyways, Anna came on my program and addressed her directly, uh, and I can't use the language on your show, Fred, 
but she essentially told her to um, to get stuffed, and I've cleaned that up. I posted that to Twitter, and then within the space of 48 hours, my Twitter Blue subscription, which I paid for a year in advance, was terminated without ex explanation. It was cancelled, no refund given. Uh, my tweet visibility was reduced by a massive factor of maybe two, three hundred fold. Uh, they've been evading me, not giving me any clear response. They won't give me a refund. And have you basically... Approached, have you approached the Safety Commissioner for an explanation? Not yet. The, do you think they owe you one? Uh, I think that the e-safety commissioner would not be giving me an explanation because I don't think that the e-safety commissioner, I don't believe it's in her interests to restore access to me, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it all it, it all. I, seems I believe that, that this. Carry on. I believe that this woman. I believe that this this woman is rogue. Uh, I don't believe that this uh, job title should even exist. Uh, I think that to take down an article like that, which is exposing. This is a woman, by the way, Fred, who who claims and virtue signals about how much she cares about protecting women online, you know, the, the irony of these people is, is, is the best part. And meanwhile, they're playing a communist-style censorship role. Yeah, yeah. Well, I... They're really an enemy of the people. They... <laughs> That, well, e-safety is, uh, is, could be perceived in Orwellian terms. Now, the, what, the, the timeline that you have just uh, recounted would seem to suggest that the e-safety commissioner has uh, played a part in, in your removal from Twitter until Elon Musk uh, came to the rescue. Um, but, of course, neither you nor I have, uh, have conclusive evidence of that. The eSafety Commissioner is welcome on this show anytime. Uh, but um, but I, I, the, uh, the, the timeline certainly suggests that um, you've been one of, you were one of the people that Alex Antich has uncovered. Um, as having been uh, censored by our very own government. How do, if that's true, how does that make you feel, Nick? Vindicated. Well, vindicated if we are free to talk about it now, but, I mean, if the government at one stage was actively trying to censor you, then that, that would be a pretty frightening it, thing, wouldn't it? Not at all. It makes me feel good. These people are... These people are um, are losers, mate. They're 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 cowards. You know, they're not they're not the banditos. They're not the Crips or the Bloods. <laughs> they're not people. These are these are these are uh, these are uh, a very uh, cowardly people, and they have to do things like this. 
So well, if censorship is if they are if they act, are actively censoring you, then I would agree. The word coward is uh, is appropriate because uh, censorship is a cowardly act. People should be free, even people whose opinions we uh, adamantly disagree with. We should be free to debate them, especially in a liberal democracy like Australia. Nick, we've run out of time, but I am so grateful for yours. Thanks so much. I can assure you, I fear these people not. <laughs> and neither do we. You're welcome back here anytime, Nick. Thanks so much. That's Thanks Nick Holt. Having, Thanks for having me. That's Nick Holt, who you can find back on Twitter, thanks to Elon Musk, under the handle at RealNickHolt. That's R-E-A-L-N-I-C-K-H-O-L-T. Uh, and he runs a very lively commentary about Australian culture and politics. Or you can subscribe to his Substack publica publication, The Modern Inquirer. Well, before I go, you might have heard that there was a marathon debate in the Senate on Friday night regarding the voice to parliament referendum legislation, which was finally passed by the Senate today. The debate on Friday night didn't end until four o'clock in the morning. Well, I've sifted through that marathon debate and found for you the key moment that encapsulates what is at stake here. It is after a long series of questions made by Northern Territory CLP Senator Jacinta Nampajimpa Price and Labor Senator Murray Watt. Senator Nampajimpa Price repeatedly asked Watt whether the parliament would feel obliged to concede to the voice to parliament advisers that tribal law should apply in disputes between indigenous people. She said that such disputes might include, for example, a woman leaving her husband, the punishment for which is being either stabbed with a spear or bashed. This isn't vague tribal law here, but law recognised by Indigenous elders, some of who might indeed wind up on the Voice to Parliament advisory panel. Here is how, after several attempts to get what to answer the question, Senator Nampajinpa Price put it. I would suggest that this bill is opening a doorway to a lot more than what I think this government can, can handle. So I would like to understand the voice may very well be made up of individuals who would like customary law recognised by this parliament and respected and given that there are so many individuals in this parliament that fall over themselves to acknowledge and respect Indigenous Australians <laughs> and stand here uh, every day and, uh, and tell us all um, consistently without fail this wonderful respect they have, elders past, present and emerging, some of these elders that make up the voice may very well seek to have customary law recognised, whether it be through the voice, whether it be through treaty. So I'd like to understand which elements of customary law this government respects and will honour. Will it honour traditional payback when a law is broken and someone is forced to have a spear through the leg.
Minister. I refer to my previous answer. This bill isn't about those issues. And there you have it. Senator Watt won't say because he knows that, yes, the Parliament of Australia will absolutely defer to the Indigenous representatives because that's what the voice to Parliament is designed to do. As Prime Minister Anthony Albanese himself has said, it would be a brave Parliament that ignored any advice from the proposed Indigenous panel. Any Australian citizen who votes yes to this racist, regressive proposal is dead set bonkers. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. If you want to see more ADH content, have a look around our website or our app for some of the best commentary in the nation from people like Mark Stein, Alan Jones, Daisy Cousins, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, Dave Pello, and more. Tell your friends, ADH is the new home for common sense commentary. And there's no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you again on Monday at 7 p.m. Good night.